Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, if you have a Bible, let's get to it. Matthew chapter 6 is where we find ourselves. We're picking back up after a couple week break from the Sermon on the Mount. This first Sunday of the year, we're getting back into this series through this most famous of sermons by Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We finished up chapter 5 at the end of last year. I'm going to start in chapter 6 today. We'll be in the Sermon on the Mount for uh, probably another two months or so, right before Easter. And uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll do something else after Easter. As you're finding Matthew chapter 6, as always, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. You're welcome to not only use that, but if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible. Let it be our gift to you. If you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, you can find Matthew 6 on one of the two pages listed there. Same version of the Bible, just different printings, so that's why there's two page numbers there. As you're finding that, let me just mention last week, uh, I know it was the Sunday after Christmas, a lot of you were probably... I don't know, laying out, I don't know what you were doing, but Robert Ward preached a, just a wonderful message on, uh, on engaging the Bible from the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and 35, looking at the book and the king in the book. I would highly commend it to you. If you are the type of person that just needs some good motivation like me to stir your affection for God's word at the beginning of the year, and maybe you're launching into a Bible reading plan. By the way, we have a bunch of Bible reading plans. If you're, if you're inclined to be disciplined in that way in the resource room, you're welcome to just pick one up and take it. But listen to Robert's message. I think that will encourage you. It's online. I think we maybe have CDs out on the, uh, the desk out front. would encourage you to listen to that. All right. So this is 2016, 23 years ago. I was a young soldier at Fort Benning, Georgia, and one of the first things you do at training at Fort Benning is you learn how to navigate through the woods. And I found out all important uh, is that first, they got your compass there, and the first azimuth, it's a degree, that you, the direction that you're shooting with that compass is all important. Because if you are pointed the wrong way, even if it is just a degree or two to the right or left, by the time you get to your intended destination, you will be way off. The way that you are headed, the thing that you are pointed at, is all important as you begin your journey. And I think that's the point, really, of the text. I think that's much of the point of chapter 6. And so... Let's do this. Let me read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and then I'll pray, and then we'll we'll work our way back through this text. The, the, The point today is that God is calling us to live a Godward life, a life that is pointed in the direction of His glory for our joy. Let me read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, 
so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, let's pray. Father, as we open up your word on this first Sunday of a new year, we're profoundly grateful. Father, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit coming alongside your holy word, that you would meet us here this morning. I don't know what the circumstances obviously are of all those that are gathered here. Maybe there are many believers in Jesus who are um, burdened with the cares of life. Maybe there are people that are resolving to try and live a better year, and so they've by invitation or just by your providence, they've come into this church just seeking a new start. Lord, there are a thousand different scenarios and situations. And we are tempted to think that there's something right in front of us, some horizontal thing that we can reach out and grab and do that will make things better. Would you, by your grace, Free us from this illusion, and would you lift our eyes? The greatest need of every person in this room, whether they've been a Christian all for 40 years or whether they are here for the first time, Lord, the greatest need for all of us is to see and savor and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and his victorious work. Would you? Help us to see you this morning. And would you transform us? And would you do these things for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we can break down these four verses, we need to do just a little bit of catch-up just to review to find out where we are instead of just parachuting down. I know it's been a couple weeks. So remember when we started out, In Matthew chapter 5, we started out with Jesus talking and establishing these these famous words, the Beatitudes, these postures of the Christian, of what it means to be a Christian, to be humble and meek and poor in spirit, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's the characteristic of the Christian's posture. And then we found that when we live this way, that will inevitably produce persecution. The world's not going to be okay with people that love Jesus and whose heart is set on Him. And so that will cause us to be persecuted. But yet even in this persecution, Jesus says there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 that that is part of God's providence, that we can be salt and light to a world that, that is against the gospel. And then, which we spent the last month or so on, Jesus then established this relationship between His mission and the whole Old Testament. He said that I have not come to to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. And he ties together this great grand plan of God that the law in the Old Testament was given not just to be a sort of task list that we could mistakenly think that we could perform, but no, sin has done something more than just neutralize us or make us you know, less than we thought we were. Sin has completely incapacitated us. God has given His law to show us that And to push us not into trying harder, but to finally resting in Him and what Jesus has done for us. And so Jesus fulfills the law for us. And 
The epitome of what it means to be a Christian is not to trust in yourself and what you can do to please God, but to trust in Jesus. And when we do that, He gives us a new heart and we can, in an increasing way, obey His law. And now that gets us to Matthew chapter 6, where we'll read over the coming weeks, Jesus gives us three instances of what this transformed heart does and how it interacts with the world around them. And he gives these three examples of giving to the poor, which we just read in verses 1 through 4. Next week, we'll look at Jesus' instruction about prayer. And then the week after that, we'll look at Jesus' instruction about fasting. So giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And these three things were really markers, are signs of the religious life in Jesus' day and certainly to a great extent, in our day as well. And we would make a mistake if we thought, and if we approached these next three weeks, as if the teaching is merely about instruction on how we should do better at giving to the poor. Or next week, how we should do better at praying. Or the following week, how we should do better at fasting. No, I think that there's a deeper thing that Jesus is getting. And I'm not trying to be all mysterious and esoteric like it's some great thing. It's it's simple. It's there for us to see in the text. It is this idea. I think Matthew chapter 6, the first part of the chapter, is about reward. We read it in the text. Did you see there that he says that, Beware of practicing your righteousness, there in verse 1, before other people, in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus is establishing that there is this motivation of the Christian life and it is the reward of the Father in heaven. Then he contrasts it with these religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees who were doing what they did in their giving to the poor for the mere reward of the applause of men. And then finally, he says, don't be like that. At the end of our text, he says, your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Well, we're going to read next week that when he says to pray in this way, not sort of out public babbling words to make a show of yourself, but go into your secret place and pray. He says that in verse, I think it's six there, he says, your father who sees you in secret will reward you when you pray with that type of heart. And then when we get to fasting in a couple weeks, he says, when you fast in this way, your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And all of this culminates with what we'll get to in four weeks, this idea that we are to lay up treasures in heaven where there is this reward for us. And so I think that the the point of chapter 6 is this idea of reward. And when we see that, then it transforms the way we live. It transforms the way we give to the needy. It transforms the way we pray, it transforms the way we fast, it transforms the whole of the Christian life. So let's look at our text to just see what's going on there. It's not complicated at all, but let's just see. We see there that Jesus is is admonishing his people to not be like these hypocritical Pharisees who are blowing trumpets. Can you imagine that? You know, kind of rolling out with your robe on, banging some cymbals. I'm giving to the poor. Everybody, look at us. We are awesome. Now we kind of laugh at that, right? Like, but that's basically what's going on there. And we think, oh, well, that's silly. Ah, but you see, the Pharisees didn't have Facebook, so that's the only way they could announce 
<laughs> little jab there for you at the beginning of the year. It's the only way they could announce. So let's not, let's, not, let's not look down the end of our nose at these religious hypocrites and say, oh, these knuckleheads. How could they be so haughty? I actually think that we are more subtly crafty in the way that we blow our trumpets. Don't we blow our trumpets? And Jesus, I think this is clear. It's not, it's not hidden there. He's saying, don't be like that. Why? Because what hangs in the balance is this idea of a reward. He says that if you live in this sort of trumpet blowing, all about you, doing it for the applause of men sort of way, you're going to get your reward and that's just the applause of men. But there's a greater reward that you are actually wired for that should be the motivation for the Christian life. The reward from heaven. In fact, no notes on the screen today, but if you're inclined to write things down, this might be a a phrase for you to just dwell on. God wired us for reward. We're wired for reward. Now, now I know that goes against some of your kind of fundamentalist, Bible-thumping backgrounds, you know. That you kind of grow up in this no joy, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with boys or girls that do, and you just tuck in your shirt, comb your hair, sit straight, don't say anything, and be good, Johnny and Susie. Right? Oh, some of us really, yeah, okay. Take a moment, sister, if you need to, to just kind of detox from that. And what that produces in us is a certain begrudging submission to a grumpy God. But when we see here, we, let's savor this word that Jesus is saying that the motivation for the Christian life is not begrudging submission, but reward. As opposed to this temporary reward that these people were blowing trumpets for. C.S. Lewis, this wonderful British thinker and writer, he didn't get everything right. There were some things that he believed that uh, I would certainly not think are, are good, but he had a keen and colorful mind. I'm sure many of you are, are familiar with him. And he wrote this book called The Weight of Glory. Uh, and in it, he talked about how our desires are not too strong, but they're actually too weak. He says that we are like, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says that we are like children when we give in to these sort of lesser pleasures like the applause of men or just any other vice that we sort of give ourselves to, thinking that that's where pleasure is and we see God as this begrudging, you know, grumpy grandpa, that when we give in to these little lesser counterfeit pleasures, that really we're like children that are satisfied with playing in the mud in the slums when what God offers us is a beautiful holiday by the sea. Right? And I think there's a lot of truth to that, that, that we are wired for reward, but the fall has crisscrossed, it has, it has messed up our wiring. That's the reality of the human condition. We are wired for reward, but our wiring got crisscrossed at the fall, and now we are so easily pleased with false 
rewards. That's the story of the first few chapters of Genesis. God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them good, very good. He gives them everything that they need. And in Genesis 3, they, they are deceived and tricked into giving up on God's all-satisfying goodness for this false reward. And what happens in that moment is all humanity, along with Adam and Eve at the fall, our wiring gets confused. And now we look for pleasure in all the wrong places. Just like that country music song, whatever it was, looking for love in all the wrong places, right? That's, 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 that's the condition of the human heart. We don't even look for love and pleasure and joy and reward in the wrong places. We, 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 really look, for, we look to be made much of in ourselves, right? We become, we become glory thieves, right? Now it's not about God and seeking pleasure and joy and reward in God, but this sin that we have all partaken in, it, it so disorders our affections and the wiring of our heart that we become glory thieves. And right after the fall, in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see just a couple chapters later, we see humanity trying to build a tower of Babel. And what do they say in those early chapters? They say they build this tower so that they can rise up so that we might be like God, so that we can make a name for ourselves. And God scatters all humanity. But you know what? We have been building towers of Babel in our own hearts since we were born, that we would be great and make names for ourselves. And that's what's going on with these Pharisees. They want to make a name for themselves because their wiring is so disordered. They will only be satisfied in their own glory rather than the reward of God. And we are all born this way. We are glory thieves. And we seek to find this glory By making ourselves the center of attention and getting glory from other people. Listen to what Richard Baxter says. He was a Puritan pastor who lived back in the 1600s. I've read this quote before a few months ago. So good, it deserves a double dip. So let me give it to you. And this is Richard Baxter. This is the name of the sermon, by the way. I love this. Um, I'm thinking about maybe one of my resolutions is to name my sermons Puritan-like names. This is what Richard Baxter called this sermon. (laughs) directions against inordinate man-pleasing or that overvaluing of the favor of man, which is the fruit of pride and a great cause of hypocrisy or directions against idolizing man. All right, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. That's just the title. This is what Baxter says about this desire for glory ourselves and how we seek to get it by pleasing people, which is exactly what the Pharisees are doing here when they're blowing trumpets and making it about them. Listen to what Baxter says. This is so good. Remember how silly a creature man is and that his favor can be no better than himself. The thoughts and words of a mortal worm are matters of no considerable value to us. Remember what a multitude you have to please. And when you have pleased some, how many more will still be unpleased? And how many displeased when you have done your best? Alas, we are insufficient at once to observe all those that observe us and would be pleased by us. You are like that one 
that hath but twelve pence in his purse, and a thousand beggars come about him for it, and every one will be displeased if he have it not all. Boy, that, that's, what the, that's what living for the applause of man, it is, a, it is a harsh taskmaster. And that's the trap that these Pharisees are in here. That's the delusion that they find themselves in when they blow their trumpets, thinking that they can be satisfied by the applause of people who esteem them highly because of their faux religiosity. And Baxter is telling us, oh, that's a tough slave driver. It will never satisfy. And Jesus is pointing us to a greater and more satisfying reward. And what is that, friends? Well, we know that that begins with a proper understanding of who God is and what he has done in his son Jesus. We've prayed it, we've sung it, we've read it. Let's review it again. Understanding the reward is to understand and remember and rehearse and dwell on the gospel, the good news of what God has done. So go to Titus chapter 3. If you don't want to flip there, it'll be on your screen. Listen to Paul's words to Titus in chapter 3. This is such a good text. Well, it's all good text. I, you know, I say that a lot. And, um, every now and again, zings me, Brad, it's all God's word. I know. Easy, simmer down, simmer down. But like every, every now and again, just like God's word, there's a couple verses that just sort of jump off the page to you. Not a couple, like hundreds. This is one of them, right? All right. So with that caveat, Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Here's the key verse. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. So don't, don't, don't stay on the surface and don't think, yeah, man, that's me. You know, I'm slave to some vice, something that I need to quit, some, some, some habit that I just can't give up. Yes, yes, but there's actually something deeper that we are a slave to. It is this passion for inordinate praise from other people. It's this passion for our own glory. It's this passion for the applause of men. It's this passion for satisfaction in anything outside of God. And we were led astray by this miswired heart, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's an important word, we're going to come back to it in a second, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So let's, let's Look more closely at that text here and really understand what's going on before we can move on into understanding what reward is. Paul is saying that we were captive to our dead hearts that were sending us down all the wrong paths to find glory for ourselves and seek applause from other people. And our hearts are captive to this. The Bible in other places says that our hearts are dead in sin. And then in verse 4 of Titus 3, there's this beautiful word, but, but 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. It doesn't mean that He meets us halfway and says that if you will resolve to do better in 2016, I will meet you halfway and bless your life. No, we were slaved, we were dead in our sins, carrying out these passions, doing all of this stuff ultimately for us. And by the way, let me just stop and say, you may think, Brad, I'm not that wicked of a cat. I mean, you're talking about slaves to passions, hating people. I'm a halfway decent guy. I mean, I may not be a believer in Jesus, but I'm kind of halfway okay. Okay, let's go down that road a little bit. Yeah, you may not be the worst cat in the world, but... Let me give you a picture of glory, thievery, and sin. Think of it this way. I've given this analogy before. Think of a young man who's adopted by these parents. They give him every privilege. They grow him up in this house. They send him to the best Ivy League school. He gets a great education. He gets out of college, and he goes and does this wonderful, gets this wonderful job and makes all this money. And with all this money, he starts to do good works right? Good works in quotation. But when his mom and dad call him and say, hey, are you going to come home for Christmas? He doesn't even answer the phone. In fact, when he left their house, he doesn't even acknowledge them. He doesn't take their calls, doesn't answer their emails. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't even respond to his mom and dad who were the source of all of his blessing. But then he does, air quote, good works, right? Well, we wouldn't say that guy is doing good works. We would say that he is a selfish jerk who won't acknowledge the grace of his parents. Well, friends, in an infinitesimally larger way, any goodness that you may do as a human being compared to somebody else, when it is detached from acknowledging, acknowledging the source, is not goodness, it's treason. It's you saying, I did this. This is about me. So any supposed good work that doesn't acknowledge the source of its good work, which is God, isn't just a detached good work floating in the universe of human good works. It is treason of the highest order. So do you see that there is no goodness apart from the fountain of all goodness, which is God? So all of us are, well, yeah, we may not be, you know, pillaging people and robbing stuff and killing people, but friends, all of us are, when we are not trusting in Christ, not believing in God, not acknowledging Him, not living for what we were created for, giving Him glory, are committing high treason. Whether you are a good moral guy who's an unbeliever, or whether you are a terrorist flying planes into a building, you are committing spiritual high treason. And so you are in this predicament where you are captive to your glory hunger for yourself. And here's the goodness of the gospel. When you are dead in that helpless estate, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God are appeared, He saves us. Not 
by negotiating with us a certain measure of good things that we can do to please him. But what does it mean when it says that he saved us? It means that he takes our dead hearts, which are captive to sin, and by his sovereign, free grace, he makes us Alive, that's that next word. Remember I said we'd come back to it. He says, how does he do this? By the washing of regeneration. That word regeneration means new birth. So you are dead and God makes you be born again. Now, I'm not going to draw this on the chalkboard, boys and girls. But how much negotiation did you take part in in your birth? You know, mom and dad, uh, I'm just a twinkle in your eye right now. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to be a good kid. So uh, do what you do and let's cooperate in this process, right? That's not how it works, right? It's not because of anything we do. That's the way rebirth works. You were passive in your natural birth. It was all by the will of mom and dad. And the good news of the gospel is, you may think it's bad news, but it's actually good news when you stare at it long enough. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to make yourself born again. But the rich and deep and powerful mercy of God hits your heart and he makes you alive. That's the gospel right there. And he takes your dead heart And he makes it alive. And now because it's alive, it can see what he did to make you right with him through sending his son Jesus, who is the perfect God-man in the flesh, to die on the cross, absorb his punishment that should have been yours, rise again in victory over it. And now because he is the king of death and life, he has the power to say to you, get from your grave, get away from that passion and pleasure, unshackle him because he's mine. And that, friends, that is the new heart that is now, remember we said the heart was wired, crossed, now this heart is now rewired and oriented and able, not perfectly for the rest of this life, but now enabled to find joy and pleasure and reward in God and not the applause of men. Now everything changes, friends, and we are enabled to see the surpassing worth of Christ. And it changes everything. Because now we're freed from giving ourselves to things that were false pleasures before. Our reward now is not a transaction, but the transformation of our heart. And now we're satisfied with something so much deeper than the applause of men, but God's goodness and glory. Listen to this quote from John Piper in his little book, little devotional book called A Godward Life, which actually um, I got the title for this sermon from. Listen to this. Piper's going to paint this picture of being satisfied with the spring water from a mountain. And let that be an analogy I'll tie together in just a second about God's glory. He says, The glory of bread is that it satisfies. The glory of living water 
is that it quenches the thirst. We do not honor the refreshing, soul-replenishing, pure water of a mountain spring by lugging buckets of water up the path to make our contributions from the ponds below. We honor the spring by feeling thirsty, getting down on our knees and drinking with joy. Then we say, ah, that's worship. And we, when we go on our journey in the strength of the fountain, that's service. The mountain spring is glorified most when we are most satisfied with its water. What's the point that Piper's making there? He's saying that the reward that God has for us is himself. And when we get a new heart through the gospel, through salvation, that God now reorders our pleasures and our desire. And now it's not, okay, God, now I'm a Christian. Now I've got to do these things to kind of make you happy. Now we are satisfied in drinking from the goodness of God and our hearts are no longer glory thieves, but they're glory givers and giving glory to the mountain spring of God's grace satisfies us just like that drink of water does on a hot day. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be free from what other people think and what this world would say to us, but we would be captivated with the surpassing worth of Jesus. And living in this way is the Godward life. Now, I end with this before we come around the Lord's table to receive communion. That's big and huge and a glorious and grand vision of God. I pray you see it. But you may be asking, well, Brad, how how in the world do I pursue this? Like, how do I do this? Well, I I think that, I think that's a good question. But I'm not going to be tempted to run off into a checklist. Okay, so this is how you behold the glory of God who gives the reward of himself and the satisfaction of being his child. This is how you live this Godward life. Okay, see God in all of his glory, what he's done for you. Now run off and start doing stuff for him. See, I think that would be a mistake. How do we, what do we do? How do we pursue this? Well, the first is, I think it's just that, is to see God. Listen to what, listen to what Paul writes to to, to the Corinthian church about just seeing what happens when we see the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. That's a key phrase. When we see the glory of the Lord, what happens next? We are transformed, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what Paul is saying is that when you, when you see how good God is and what he's done for you and how satisfying he is, when you see it, to actually behold it with your new heart that he gave you will bring about transformation. Like beholding is becoming. 
So, so friends, at the beginning of the year, let's not say, okay, I got to buckle down and do better and I got to do this checklist and all this. No, to behold the beauty and the glory of God when we see it, our greatest need is not a more organized life. Our greatest need is to clearly see the beauty and the all-surpassing worth of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we see it clearly, everything else falls away. Do you see that? And now we are free. Like we're free. We're free to give to the needy. Because because we're not bound by the applause of men. We're not bound by money or possessions. When we behold God in this way, we're free to give praise to other people because God is ultimately pleased with us in Christ. And so what, 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 what does it matter if I give applause away to somebody else that I may be jealous of because there's nothing that I'm losing out on because I have all that I could possibly need in God? Listen to this, young men. When we behold God in this way and the all-surpassing worth of His glory, we are free to enjoy the presence of the opposite sex without spiraling into lust Because in God, there is something better than temporary gratification. And listen to me, young single person who is wondering whether or not there will ever be somebody for you to marry. Do not fall into the trap of making an idol out of marriage and sexual pleasure. That is a trap that will never satisfy. It is a harsh taskmaster. If you have God, and if you behold Him and you live for Him, whether or not you give yourself in marriage or in sexual intimacy with another person for the rest of your life, to obey God and to behold God is more pleasurable than anything else. Jesus was the most satisfied and fulfilled person who ever walked the earth, and He was never married. And when we see this glory of God, it frees us from this lie that says we're not complete until we are married. We're free to enjoy the gifting, the personality of other people because we're not in a competition with them for other people's approval. We're free. We're free to give to the needy. We're free from this broken world. Now friends, I have found in my 20 or so years of being a Christian that that's easy to talk about on a Sunday, but it's virtually impossible to live by on your own throughout the week. And so like, so come on, who does this well, right? We need each other, don't we? Like that's why we need to be, that's why we need to be a gritty, Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting spirit Spirit-empowered, grace-dripping, humble-exuding group of people because there's no way we can behold God in this way on our own. We need each other. And so let's, let's march to the mountain spring of God's grace in this new year for the reward of beholding the glory of God and come down the mountain with buckets full of spring water free to give it away to a world that's thirsty. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we prepare now to come to your table, I pray that you would help us 
see this beautiful truth that you alone are our reward. Lord, on Tuesday of this week or Thursday of this week or Friday night, we'll be tempted to blow our own trumpets, seeking the approval of a harsh taskmaster, man. In that moment, would you reorder our affections afresh? And would we see the beauty and the sufficiency of what you have done for us in Christ? This world is full of counterfeit pleasures. And our greatest need this new year is to see afresh how satisfying you are. Lord, as we come around this table, as we take this bread and this juice, may we feast on the bread of life which this bread represents and symbolizes Jesus, that we would feast on you and your goodness and that we would be filled and satisfied. Do this, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.